Okay, I want to talk tonight about building churches or making disciples. Kind of a question, kind of a thought, a little more of a teaching tonight. Uh, we have a great mandate, a great mission from Jesus that we're to accomplish. And one thing that stands out is when it's in the New Testament, when Jesus was confronted by Pharisees, religious leaders, lawyers, and one guy in particular came up and said, you know, they were trying to trick him all the time, and he'd always come back and make him feel stupid. And, uh, but he asked him, what's the greatest of all commandments? And Jesus basically, in two verses, summed up the whole Bible. Love God and love people. And it's one of the mandates in our uh, inside lookbook in the chair right back there. That it says, and it's based on that scripture, love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. With all faculties of thought, quick intelligence, keenness, moral understanding, all of, everything you've got. We're to love the Lord and love your neighbors yourself. It's the cross. Love God and love people. It's that simple. And so that's the great commandment. And then before he left, some of his last words we call the Great Commission. And that's what I want to focus on. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That means of all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, he didn't say go out and make converts. Okay? So I want to kind of challenge us all and think about this a little bit. And another point, first of all, in today's society, you can call yourself a Christian but not really be a true follower of Jesus Christ. Let me kind of realize that. There's a lot of people that call themselves Christian, but I really wonder when the trumpet sounds, how many are going to actually go up, you know? And many will say, Lord, Lord. I mean, we prophesied in your name. I mean, uh, we delivered, did deliverance meetings and stuff. He said, well, get away from me. I don't know you. There's a whole other way I was going to go there. I'm going to stop right there and get back over here. Miracles are to follow us. We're not supposed to follow signs, runs, and miracles. They're to follow us. Amen. That's a little side point there. Now, I think there are many who consider themselves to be followers of Jesus and are not. And in many ways, they look like followers of Jesus. They go to church, profession of faith, read their Bibles, pray, give an offering. But they're not the real deal. At least they're not thinking like the real deal. They're not acting like the real deal. A disciple is a true follower of Jesus Christ. In other words, that's the term we use that we Christian. Christian and disciple are some of the same words. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple, but if you're not a disciple as Jesus defines you, then you're not a Christian. Okay? It's Christian and disciple are a lot like if I call my uh, Sharon, she's my wife and she's my spouse. Two different words, but it's the same thing. Christian and disciple. But here's the thing. The term disciple occurs 269 times in the New Testament, while the term Christian only occurs three times. And it was in the book of Acts where they were told that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. That's in Acts chapter 11. And so it makes it clear that these terms are interchangeable. All right? Now let's go to the story in Luke 14, verse 25. Verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned to them and said. Okay, so now think. There's a crowd of people following Jesus. These are people they are not an antagonistic toward Jesus. They're fairly positive. I mean, they're following him. And he turns and he begins to make a statement to him. All right? He turns to him and he says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life, also he cannot be my disciple. Now, the word hate 
in the Jewish culture is used to express a lesser love. Okay, so it's more about priorities, not about your relationship so much with people. And it goes on to say, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple or cannot be called a Christian. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest when he has laid the foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock at him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Goes on to talk about a king going to war, that you better count the cost, how many troops you have, how many resources, how much ammo, before you go and take on you know, somebody else and end up kind of walking away with your tail between your legs. So Jesus' words in verse 27. If anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That can also be phrased, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be a Christian. This ought to kind of emphasize, uh, I mean, hopefully it opened our eyes to what he's really saying here. Because sometimes we just throw that term Christian around really loosely, and we need to be thinking, what does it mean to be a disciple? And Jesus does not give us an, op an option. To be a Christian is to be a disciple, is to be a follower of Jesus. And he's not speaking about emotional feelings toward him or our families, but he's talking about our level of commitment. He's saying our commitment to obey and follow him has to be greater than any other commitment we have at all. Would you agree with that? Okay. In other words, Jesus has to be first in our priorities and loyalties. The crowds were willing and they were even anxious to follow Jesus. I mean, they gave up some things to some degree. I mean, they had to give up a little of their time. Maybe it cost them a little gas money to get there. They had to eat out, so they knew they had a little bit of expense involved there. I mean, it's like coming to church. I mean, sometimes it costs us a little bit. I mean, it could be a little more gas if we, gotta, if we can't go to the lake that day or maybe sit, sleep in late and watch TV. I mean, I can't believe how tough it is sometimes to be a Christian. I mean, today, believe it or not, I had to come to church in a vehicle the air conditioning didn't work. I mean, persecution, I'm telling you. And it was a vehicle somebody gave me. So, I mean, I was blessed there, but I couldn't believe this person hasn't continued to check on it and say, is your air working? Anything I can do to kind of get it up to snuff? Or, you know, that's just, anyhow. But sometimes it's kind of like church like that. I mean, we're just, you know, it's, it's pretty tough what we do here. But he's talking to this crowd. And they were anxious to follow him up to, as long as the cost wasn't too high and the demand wasn't too great. They were willing to follow him. It's like many people who do Christian things. They go to church. They pray. Um, but they're not really committed to Jesus. In a sense, they're along for the ride, but unwilling to give up everything and anything when it conflicts with following Jesus and the commitment they made to him. And I believe there's many today who look to Jesus, solve their money problems, solve their relationship problems, health problems, etc., who quickly grow disillusioned and unwilling to obey or follow him when everything doesn't go just right. And they kind of get a little frustrated. And, and, uh, and these are the large crowds. You know, these are the casual followers. They're not commi committed followers. And so I ask, which are you? But I say that, what am I? I mean, it's us, right? Because I, like Larry said, sometimes i got to challenge myself. I say, man, am I really going hard after God? And it's so easy in this culture, this busy technology, raising kids and going here and there and sometimes families, two jobs and husband and wife and making in, just get caught up. And just to kind of, you know, like the rat, just kind of going around and hamster around in that cage, you're just trying to keep up with things. And so I know what it's like. And sometimes then there's a spirit that kind of gets on us too that's in this culture and in America. And it can kind of blind us and keep us sidetracked and not keep the main thing the main thing. 
in other countries, following Jesus, I mean, that can be a whole different thing. That means when you accept Jesus, you're kicked out of a family. Uh, you could possibly lose your life. I mean, even in America, there's some people that have made commitments to Christ that they're committed Christian and their spouse is not. And it has caused a lot of problems just in that realm. But I want us to think for a minute. Uh, to be a disciple, what does it mean? Because Jesus said we need to count the cost. It's free, but there's a cost. And I think a little bit of an example comes out of this book, Cost of Discipleship. It's the example, suppose you have a desire to climb, to climb Mount Everest. Anybody ever had a desire? My hand's down. I'm not in there. No. Maybe if it was totally warm, I might. I can deal with heat better than I can cold. But let's say you had that desire, but you didn't have the $70,000 it might take to be able to proceed to climb that mountain. Okay? But a businessman hears your desire. He decides to put up the money. So for 70 grand, he's going to go ahead and uh, pay for your entire expedition. He's going to buy all the expensive clothing, gear. He'll pay for transportation, guides, uh, training. It's totally free to me. But you know what? Once I accept that free offer, I've just committed myself to months and months of training, uh, much exertion to try to get in shape to be able to do that, and then the thought that I could lose my life because there's many great climbers that have lost their lives trying to go up Mount Everest. And so it's free, but it's very costly. There's also a commercial on TV you might remember. There's a man sitting in a chair, and he's talking about counting the cost, and he's getting a tattoo. Okay, he wants to express his love to Donna. So he's getting a tattoo for Donna, all right? And they are doing the tattoo about halfway done, and he's, oh, by the way, how much is this going to cost? They said $50. He kind of panics, and he looks, I've only got 41 And then it switches to the scene where he's on the street, and Donna's yelling at him, believing, I, you know, leaving, and I can't believe you did this. And then it pans in on his tattoo that says, I love Don. <laughs> Didn't quite get it finished, did he? Didn't count the cost. You know, some t has anybody ever seen this book or read it? Fox's Christian Martyrs of the World. Just a little cheap book, usually on sale, because nobody really wants to read it. But every once in a while, I'll just pull it out. I'm just reminded how fortunate we are. Like I said, you know, my, how I had to drive here in this tough Texas heat and, and uh, no air conditioning in my car. Uh, they're just terrible book in a way. This guy's name is John Hawks. We're talking about 1555. Six men were brought before this bishop. Uh, this guy had a son and refused to have him baptized in the Catholic Church. And they get in this argument. And it's the whole page of a really a, a powerful argument. of, uh, And he was using scripture. But the church was coming against him and against the Protestant way and just, you know, salvation by faith, et cetera. But it gets down to they call him a heretic, throw him in prison. And he's there from February to June when they finally get ready for his death. And they, they burn people at the stake is what they're doing. So here's what it says. A little before his death, some of Hawk's friends asked him a favor. They were afraid for their own lives and wondered how long faith could stand in the midst of the fire. Hawks agreed to lift his hands over his head if the pain was tolerable and his mind was still at peace. When he had begun in the fire, when he had been in the fire so long he could no longer speak, his skin had shrunk, his fingers had burned off, and everybody thought he was dead. Hawks suddenly raised his burning hands over his head and clapped them together three times. The people 
there, especially those who understood this gesture, broke into shouts of praise and applause as Thomas, Thomas Hawk sunk down into fire and gave up his spirit. I mean, there's stories in there that are ten times more descriptive than that. And, you know, some, we, we really are blessed here, aren't we? Amen. So that's just kind of a wake-up thing for me sometimes. Uh, but Jesus didn't preach about being born again. I want you to think about that statement. He used it as an illustration when Nicodemus came to him and was asking for some answers about what it means to be a Christian. And Jesus used this illustration like, uh, you must be born again. And then, of course, Nicodemus, well, how could you go back in your mother's womb and, and et cetera? But basically here, Jesus is saying it goes far beyond that initial conversion and being born again. It's much more than that. It's, much, it's about being a disciple, okay? Being born again is not the end. It's just the beginning. It's kind of like when you go to have a baby, and first, when you become a new believer, you're born again, so you're a new cre a creation, a new creature. When a baby is born in the natural, they're a new creation. Would you agree? Okay, but you don't have a baby, and then before you leave the hospital, tell the baby, he said, now, listen, little son, uh, when you're about four or five years old, you really need to go to school so you can learn how to be a productive person. Now, if you have a problem finding a school, just give me a call. And, uh, you know, I'll give you the one closest to you. And then you leave and say, oh, by the way, I love you. And that would just be silly. But so many times people come to this altar, and that's kind of what we do as a church. I say, well, we got this class to come to, or, you know, well, God bless you, and here's a Bible or whatever. And it's kind of a challenge for all of us, okay? So let's talk about making disciples. We need to teach, disciple, and get involved in the process of Christian growth. It's not the responsibility of the church itself. It's not the responsibility of the paid staff. Because in Ephesians says, the pastors, the apostles, the prophets, the teachers are here to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And so me, as a Christian, what are my responsibilities? Okay? So let's talk about making disciples. Because we're not here to build churches, okay? Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. A matter of fact, he said, unless the Lord builds a house, we labor in vain. Now, when I became, and first of all, we're called to make disciples. And this is pastor's heart, okay? This is the way his life started. When he was a Christian, he immediately began to find other people and witness to them. He started Bible studies. He'd just do one-on-one -on -one discipleship. So this is in his heart. When I got saved, there was nobody there to disciple me. Maybe that's why, as a church, we're not real good disciples, because maybe we've never been discipled. You know, just like some of us have a hard time being a good father, because we were never fathered properly. And we've had to kind of learn through the Bible, or just different examples, or whatever. But nobody really followed me around. But the thing is, when I got saved, and it was just, somebody said the four spiritual laws. Raised my hand and said a prayer, like we do a lot of these Sundays. And that simple prayer really turned my life around. That's why I do that a lot. I just say, man, here's your opportunity, because it worked for me. But the thing is, I mean, I really, and it, some things took longer than others. But I was willing to die to myself, pick up my cross, and follow him. I just begin to follow him. And if you'll just follow him, even if you mess up and go the other way a little bit, God will put people in your path. God put me in a church that helped me to grow. God put people around me that would just kind of challenge me. And, and I got involved in some Bible studies where I grew. I'm telling you, it's hard to lead somebody that doesn't follow. That's my frustration. Sometimes, oh, people dis you know, disciple me, help me do this. Well, just follow me a little bit. You know, I, I, yeah, I'm, 
yeah, I don't have time right now to come to Starbucks and drink coffee with you, even though that would be a great thing. Why don't you come and let's do some work a while, and we'll disciple that way. Not that either's wrong, whatever your grace and gifting is. So I've been here over 26 years. It's always been a challenge following up on new converts. I mean, we've had different programs, we've had different classes, we've had different follow-up materials and techniques, and as a church, it becomes very difficult, especially in this culture, to disciple effectively. I mean, it's just tough. It's, it's, it's a tough thing in this culture. And we usually default to a class. That's what we usually do. Is here. Okay, we have this class. When you come to that altar, fill out this card, and we have people call them and come to this class. But the class we've had the last six weeks, nobody's came. Even though people have come to the altar, people have gotten a call. And so a lot of times the class kind of dries up, and what do we do? We've got to promote it better. And so we try to promote it better, and we go back and kind of go in a circle. I've had some things God's put in my heart since youth ministry and trying to, uh, just through all of that. i got things written in my journal, and I've, a lot of these things are just coming back to the surface right now because of the urgency that the time is short. I think everybody is sensing that. And as a church, we're trying to find out, okay, we need to raise up more leaders. We need more small groups. We need to have, we need to do a better job of discipling. And so all this is being stirred up right now. And I believe I got some pieces of the puzzle, and I know I need a few more, but I, even in the last few weeks, a lot of things have come together. Uh, a lot of this started, I don't know if you remember Steve Mural. He came here and spoke at the start of the year. Uh, he's got, and right after he spoke, I went online I think it's called One Nations, but I bought this little discipleship book, One to One. It says personal follow-up and discipleship because I'm trying to find something that will work better for our church, and in my heart, I've always had one-on-one -on -one discipleship, that it would, the ultimate thing would, if somebody comes to that altar, if somebody would just greet them, say, and look at them face-to-face, -face, give them a phone call, and just go through a little booklet once or twice and just help them take those first, so that's always been in my heart, but trying to Get it to happen has been another thing, okay? And now, pastor's on sabbatical when he was, and he got a hold of this book by Steve Mural. And I think it was handed out for those that were here. Some of you might have this book. It's called Wiki Church. Strangest name there is, right? Like what in the world? Wiki Church. Well, here's kind of how it came about. Pastor read that, so we're going through it as a staff. And it's basically making discipleship, engaging, empowering, and viral. That's kind of the title of the book. So here's Wiki Church. First of all, where do you go when you need information fast? You can go to Wikipedia. Millions of people do that, right? Okay, here's, and first of all, the word wiki comes from a Hawaiian word that means quick. And this whole thing came about as a little bit of an accident. These two guys in two th the year 2000, Jimmy Wales and Larry Sanger started an online encyclopedia called Newpedia. Okay, the goal was to include contributions written only by experts. Okay, so, it, so for an article to be posted in Newpedia, go, it, was pain it was just slow as could be because they wanted the scholars to research it, confirm it, make sure it was accurate. So it was this big, long process. And matter of fact, it was so slow that they unplugged the servers in 2003 with only 24 articles posted and another 75 waiting to be reviewed to make the, the thing. But what happened, they started that in 2000. In 2001, they also started the thing called Wikipedia, and it was this bigger pool of non-professionals and average people that could kind of feed into the Newpedia, and then they could go through the process. So anyhow, in one year, with the non-professionals, there was 20,000 articles written. 
And now with Wikipedia, you have 17 million articles from around the world, basically through non-professionals. What is the point of all that? It took experts three years to create 24 articles and non-experts one year to create 20,000, and now there's 17 million. Unfortunately, most churches function more like Newpedia than Wikipedia, don't we? It's like you got to do X, Y, Z uh, before you can, you know, even begin to disciple somebody or talk to them about Jesus. All you need to do to talk to them about Jesus is just love Jesus, commit your life to him, and know just a hair more than they do. Just say, follow me. as We'll learn together, whatever it may be. So basically, if you're a believer, not just paid ministers, that's the wiki church. Okay, when the believers are doing the work of the ministry, when we're really engaged in discipleship. That's the book of Acts, by the way. You know that? That's the book of Acts. Okay? So what I'm presenting tonight is partly a discipleship process, but also the importance of trying to create a discipleship culture here at our church. When it comes to new believers, we need to engage, establish, equip, and empower them. So let's talk about one-to-one -one discipleship for just a moment here. Again, I'd like to see our church develop a culture of discipleship. In other words, if somebody comes to this altar or we get them over to that cross, that if there's five people there, instantly there's five members of our church that will walk over there and stand with them. And when they say that prayer and they turn around, you, somebody greets them and says, hey, uh, you got your phone number here? You got this all filled out? Okay, I want you, and what you're doing, just picture, it's a newborn baby, okay? And all we want to do is help them take their first two steps, okay? Just help them take their baby steps. Now, first of all, most of us don't want to commit to something we're not sure about. We don't want to commit to anything, just like me. I'm cautious making commitments, okay? And this thing, I'm not asking you to make a commitment to run a mile. I'm asking commitment for a, a one-month-year commitment to do something or to climb Mount Everest or anything. I'm asking you to just make a small two-step commitment. Okay, it's a Texas two-step, all right? Say Texas two-step. We're in Texas, just help them take two steps, okay? We're going to make it bite-sized, and we'll see where it grows from there. So if we could get the person that comes to the altar, and let's say Jason comes up and says, hey, I'm glad you made a commitment to Christ today. Will you do one thing with me? Will you come to this class with me two times? Next week, it's between service from 10.15 to 10.45. Just come a little early to that second service or stay after the first one, and we're going to just go to this little class together just so I, you can learn about uh, this Christian walk and how you can be strong and growing. And maybe have their phone number and give them one call. So you, even if you don't know who they are, you're just meeting them here, and the only commitment, you don't even have to know this book. You're just going to get them up to that class two times. Okay, now here's the thing. The class is not really the object, uh, or the object of the class is not necessarily to get this person discipled at the altar. It's really to get Jason to come up so I can teach him how to disciple. And then Jason can get somebody else to come with him, and they'll learn how to disciple. And then pretty soon we won't even need that class because Jason's going to meet with them at Starbucks, or he's going to say, hey, just come uh, Saturday night. We'll meet a little bit before the meal, or whatever it may be. Now, here's where it's grown since then. Like I said, I really believe this one-on-one. -on -one. But even just in the last two days, it's kind of shifted a little bit. And I was reading some books and got some more information, and I felt this kind of come into place. And I saw this one-to-one. -one. 
And you see that. It's the one written out and then the number two and then one. The one is the person getting saved. The other one on the other side is you or somebody that's just willing to disciple them, help them take the two steps. But the two in the middle, find one or two other people to do this with you. So now it's not just Jason coming to the altar to help Billy, but Jason says, Chris, will you come with me? And now, because here's the thing, if, if there's three of them or four of them sitting there now, now it's not a dialogue anymore. Now it comes to be more relational. It's even a chance more for the Holy Spirit to kind of move and hover. There's a little more, uh, the level of, it's more engaging. The le there's just a little more excitement there. You're not just in that, because it's kind of paralyzing sometimes, or man, I'm just one-on-one. -on -one. They're looking to me to be the teacher. You add one or two more people, now we're all, hey, we're going to go and get to know Jesus better. We're all a little more on the same plane. We don't feel like we have to be the, the great teacher. We, hey, we're here learning together. And especially if they can start in that little class upstairs where uh, me or Travis or me are up there. There's one or two new converts. We got 10 or 12 church members up there just watching and learning. And we help this one guy go through this simple little book here. Next week, I'm going to give every one of you a book. Hopefully we've got enough. We had to wait on them, but they should be here. Everyone will have one of these little books to go through there. Let me give you real quick some of the topics. First, it just talks about the right start. And, of course, there's an acronym. That's why I like the book. Getting started. S, stop trusting yourself and your own good works and start trusting in Jesus. T, turn away from everything the Bible calls sin. A, attend a small group, personal discipleship weekly or weekly services. R, read your Bible and obey it. Uh, T, tell others about your new relationship. That's just kind of the start of it. And then the topics are salvation, a new start, lordship, repentance, baptism, uh, Bible and prayer in the church. Just a simple book, but it's really more about the relationship, more about just somebody there to make a connection, say, hey, there's somebody here to help you get started. Okay? This is, I'm just kind of presenting a lot of my thoughts and what's going on right now, but next week we'll get a little more into this book, but if nothing else, man, there's no reason a church this side shouldn't have 100 people willing to just to help somebody take a first few steps. Would you agree? Because we're to be disciples. We're to make disciples. It's a commandment. It's something Jesus wants us to do. Okay? Now let me just uh, kind of finish with us understanding the power of multiplication versus addition. Okay? Let's say my goal was to evangelize 1,000 people a year for 15 years. Now how, at the end of 15 years, how many people are going to be evangelized? 1,000 times 15,000 people, okay? 15,000 new converts, and let's just trust that somehow they all really converted and are following Jesus, okay? 15,000 people we've added to the kingdom. But what if I led one person to the Lord every six months and spend the next six months discipling that person so they could reproduce themselves? What do you think would happen? In one year, there would be two disciples. However, in 16 and a half years, if each continued to reproduce themselves like that, every six months, there'd be no one left on earth to evangelize. We've just touched 7 billion people. Here's another little illustration. The first year, I win Larry to the Lord. We disciple. And after a year, there's two of us. After the next year, we both do that. There's four of us. And six years, 10. And you can see what happens in 33 years. We're talking how many people? Eight billion or something? Bunch of people. It's multiplication. Okay? 
Dr. Herschel Hobbs wisely said, the work of evangelism is never complete until the one evangelized becomes an evangelizer. Are you an evangelizer? I mean, I mean I'm just being honest with me, too. I can, do, I can come to church and, and put in my time and do a lot of Christian things, but what am I doing on my time even? Next week, again, I'll try to go over the book a little more. But let me close with a thought about commitment, about being a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, okay? Leadership Magazine ran a cartoon, and it showed a church building with a billboard in front. And this was especially back in the time when a lot of the light beer commercials, you know, taste great, less filling, and, you know, all the, the less kind of a thing. Well, this was the light church, okay? Light church on the billboard, it says, 24 fewer commitments, home of the 7.5% tithe. 15-minute service, a total of 45 minutes for the whole worship service. We have only eight commandments, your choice. We use only three spiritual laws and have an 800-year millennium. Everything you wanted in a church and less. It ought to be more like the song that I know we've all sang. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. Only then... Only when there's been no rivals, no refusal, no retreat in the Christian life can you come to the end with no regrets. Only when there's no rivals, no refusal, no retreat, only can we come to the end of our lives with no regrets. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do bless you. Lord, just ask you to stir us up, but Lord, just don't stir us up and let us settle back out. Lord, we're asking for a plan and a strategy in this church, in this city, Lord, how to make disciples. It's your commandment. We haven't been doing very good as a church individually, and so we really need your help. I believe you're stirring some things up. You've brought people to cross our paths. Uh, Lord, you've brought, uh, you've stirred pastor to read this book. Lord, you've been putting things on my heart and bringing them back. Lord, there's people in this house right here that they just bear witness. They know that there's more we can do, and the time is short. So we're asking for revelation. We're asking for the continued uh, development of this, I hate to say plan and program, but just at least something to get things started so we can have a culture in this house of disciples, Lord. And we just ask you that. Now, if, you're just, if that's your prayer and you want to ask the Lord to help you become a discipler, just kind of close your hands and let's just lift them right now. Nick, you can come up if you want. But let's just kind of one more time. God, we ask you. We just want to surrender our lives. Lord, it's not about being a Christian. It's about being a disciple. It's about being a fully devoted follower. So, Lord, we want to ask you to help us. Give us boldness to be a witness. Lord, give us your power. And that's the thing. You said you gave us authority to do this, to go and baptize. Lord, in the name of Jesus, and make disciples. So, Lord, we just want to thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.